every February 14th, Harry comes back to town. His pickaxe stained with blood, waiting in the shadows just for someone to kill, should they not heed his warning. It could be you! Welcome to Now Playing's review of My Bloody Valentine. Kind of romantic in a sick kind of way, isn't it? A review chosen by Now Playing patron Cordell Calkins. He's back because of you! You were responsible! Part of the My Bloody Valentine retrospective series. To mark the stupidest f***ing holiday a greeting card company ever invented. Hosted by Arnie. I don't think you know what he's capable of. Jacob. It's one intensely good-looking son of a bitch if you ask me. And Stuart. Oh, bunch of clowns. Things haven't changed a bit. Same as always. This podcast will be spoiler-filled and may contain harsh language. Listener discretion is advised. From the heart comes a warning filled with bloody good cheer. Remember what happened as the 14th draws near. We hope you enjoy the show. Let the good times roll. All right. Today we're discussing My Bloody Valentine. I love that band. One of my favorites. Yeah, Loveless. What a groundbreaking shoegazer album. Can't wait to talk about it. One of the best albums ever made. Yep. Yeah. Love it. Let's talk about it forever. Oh, wait. This horror movie from the 80s? Oh, okay. Starring Paul Kelman. Lori Hallier, Neil Affleck, special guest appearance by Don Franks as Chief Jack Newby. Does this mean something to Canadians? Because, <laughs> wow, special guest appearance, okay. Cynthia Dale as Patty, Terry Waterland as Harriet, Jack Van Evra as Happy, directed by George Mahalka. This is Arnie, co-host of Now Playing, and will you be mine? Get it? It's a pun. This is about minors. Got it. This is Stuart. Roses are red. Violets are blue. Those two are co-hosts. And I'm Jacob. I'm a co-host, too. (laughs) (laughs) I think Justin should be here. This is Minecraft the movie. This is not a a Valentine's Day movie. This is a patron pick, actually. So it is a real movie. It is Quentin Tarantino's favorite slasher film of all time. Yeah, whenever I hear Tarantino's favorite, that's actually a warning sign to me now. I've watched some of his favorites. Yeah, he likes the semi-obscure, kind of goofy, like it would kill him to like vote for a classic, right? He's got to go with the thing that was an imitator, but to him was brilliant. And okay, so I'll bite. What patron picked this and why? This was picked by Cordell Hawkins. And I love this. He donated to our show and wasn't sure what movie it was going to be. And there was My Bloody Valentine or Tora, Tora, Tora. Wow. Yeah, those are in the same vein. Wow. Really? <laughs> that could have been Tora, Tora, Tora. That's wow. Okay. And you got me. So what was the deciding vote on this? Well, he also, a third one that was in there that wasn't quite as left field as Tora 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 was Maniac Cop. Okay. But he decided not to do Maniac Cop because he'd like us to eventually do a series of that one. Yeah, there's three, I think. Maybe more. 
He thought that we might be bored by Tora 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 because it's two hours of a two and a half hour film before they get to Pearl Harbor. Yeah, I watched it for extra credit in college. And he remembered, Stuart, when we reviewed Happy Birthday to Me, you said you hadn't seen My Bloody Valentine, and I'd only seen the, in his words, shitty remake, which was reviewed for now playing way back in, I think, 2009 when we were really young. Yeah, under the old format, just two of you. Yeah, me and Marjorie went to see it in 3D, and Cordell loves slashers and Friday the 13th and Halloween, but he said My Bloody Valentine is his favorite non-franchise slasher that has a freshness to it because we're not dealing with teens but working-class adults, and he thinks the, the killer deserves to be remembered for an awesome look, so... He thought that maybe we would enjoy it, and it kind of goes back to our horror roots of starting with Friday the 13th, Halloween, Nightmare on Elm Street. We'd probably never get to My Bloody Valentine any other way, and he's probably right about that. Well, yeah, why haven't we done it earlier is what I hear built into that. There was a time when if it was a slasher movie built around a holiday, we plugged it into that holiday. And I guess we are building up to February 14th. We're in a slasher mood having just come off of the fifth screen movie. I just want to put it out there that I am not the biggest lover of slasher movies. There's a reason why I didn't see My Bloody Valentine and... I've softened a bit. I do feel like Now Playing has taught me to enjoy these movies as comedies. As far as it being a good, I wouldn't expect My Bloody Valentine to be a good movie. He also said he'll be damned if Deadly Friend is getting reviewed, but not My Bloody Valentine. (laughs) (laughs) I will agree with you, Stuart. Like, I have mostly come to have an appreciation for slashers just from being on the show and having to become more familiar with the genre, but... Look, you want to say My Bloody Valentine is your favorite non-franchise slasher? I get it, because, like, where am I coming from? Blood Rage. Like, best non-franchise and, like, slasher period to me. So I get it. Like, I want some gratuitous, over-the-top kill scenes, and, yeah, just some campiness to it. And, like, I feel like that's what a good slasher is. And this is one I've wanted to see because, like was stated, it's got a guy, like, in a cool outfit, some kind of mining outfit. I don't know what that has to do with Valentine's Day, but I always thought that villain looked cool that I'd see in the poster art. Yeah, that surprised me. I guess I knew the poster and still didn't connect to the idea that it was going to be a killer coal miner. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. (laughs) I would have figured it would have been a heart surgeon or just some nerd in love with a girl. Something more in the Valentine's Day spirit. But yeah, coal mining. Left turn. Yeah, apparently the producer had access to a mine for a week and decided to make a movie. Actually, the producer saw the success of Black Christmas and Halloween And Friday the 13th, after Friday the 13th Part 1, Paramount, who made that film, was like, let's make another cheap slasher and see what we can get out of it. And literally, the producers sat around and were like, what holiday hasn't been taken yet? Valentine's Day. Let's make my bloody Valentine. But they actually, they didn't even let the cast know the title of the movie because they were so afraid of some other studio grabbing the Valentine's Day idea. And running with it first. I was expecting them to use the song, though, because, like, My Funny Valentine is, like, I don't know, they go with a weird folk thing. Every choice that they make (laughs) is so bizarre. (laughs) If you were going to set a slasher around a Valentine's Day, almost nothing that I see in this movie is what I would expect to connect to the holiday of love making. 
I mean, the gentleman who picked this said it's great to see working class people, not high school kids. I thought these miners were miners. I'm like, are they also in high school? Like, <laughs> I understood very little about what was happening on the screen. Really? I thought, and we'll talk about it, but I thought some of these characters were 40 and I was expecting teenagers. So I was confused. Well, some are like 40, but I feel like they're playing high school still. Yeah, Hollis is definitely 40 playing an 18-year-old, though. I'll say one thing. This is not just a slasher. This is one of those Canadian slashers. It's a little bit different flavored. Yes. You say that with a little bit of uh, hate in your voice there. No, it's not a hate. It's just uh, it's very distinctive. If you remember Happy Birthday to Me, it feels like it's, well, I'll go ahead and use the word. It feels like an imitator. It feels like it saw what was going on down below in America. And they're like, we can get on this, eh? And I don't know, maybe not as well funded, maybe not as slick as you might expect. Do you want that in an 80s slasher, though? Do you want it to look slick? I feel like this is how I want it to look. Yes, I do. I like slick 80s slashers myself. Friday the 13th Part 6 is probably my favorite other than Freddy vs. Jason. You would say that's slick, though. See, to me, that still looks very cheap. I wouldn't call that a slick slasher. Uh, Compared to Friday the 13th Part 1, 2, and 3... Okay, I don't know. They all feel very similar to me in their production values. I mean, if you're asking me, I don't want a slasher. I stopped with Halloween. That was good enough for me. That was my slasher series. You know, I've adjusted like Nightmare 3. There's a few in the 80s, but by and large, I don't know. It's kind of disreputable genre. So again, not expecting to like the movie, expecting to laugh maybe with the movie, maybe at the movie, but I don't know. I don't even remember this being on cable. I don't remember this getting a lot of attention in America. What was the box office on this? This didn't make a ton of money. It cost about $2 million to make, and it made under 6 Paramount didn't consider it a money loser, but they decided that they weren't going to be trying to push forward with sequels the way they did with Friday the 13th. And I'm with you. Like I said, I reviewed My Bloody Valentine 3D. I thought there were like four or five earlier My Bloody Valentines when 3D came out. I thought they were rebooting the franchise and that I just missed this franchise. I had no idea there was only one of them back in 1981. I really knew nothing about this franchise going into the 3D film other than I just wanted 3D horror. And that's where I learned, oh, it's about miners? A miner with a pickaxe is the killer? Okay. It's kind of a novel idea. I can say I haven't seen it in any other movie. You would have thought he'd have a bow and arrow, right? Like Cupid? (laughs) Yes, Cupid! (laughs) Again, like I just... It's cool. I would just want to put it out there. It's really cool to see the gas mask, the pickaxe, All of that, when we get the opening scene, I'm like, okay, I could get why you would make a slasher like this, but it's the Valentine's Day part. I'm never able to connect with that. Did they speak to that? You had to do a whole lot of bonus features, Arnie, I know, seeing the behind the scenes. Yes, there is a Shout Factory two-disc Blu-ray set with a ton of bonus features, and basically... They worked backwards. They had an idea for a slasher and knew holiday slashers were a big thing. So they took their movie and set it at Valentine's Day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what it feels like. Yeah, this could have been something else. Probably should have been something else. But yes, they worked in like a candy box and a severed heart. And that's about it. Keep in mind, Friday the 13th was going to be Camp Blood and Halloween was going to be the babysitter murders. So... Nothing here is a Cupid killer. If you want that, 
go watch that David Boreanaz film Valentine. It's awful, but it's what you're wanting for a Valentine's killer, I suppose. Here, you're going to get something that's set at Valentine's Day, but no, the killer is not Cupid, and it's not about young love. It's going to be about young adult love? Yeah, there's some kind of love triangle in this. And before we get into it, I did watch two cuts of this movie, and I'm curious which one you guys saw, because I'll definitely have my opinions that the cut matters. I saw what streams on Hulu. That's what I saw as well. I believe it's 90 minutes. The runtimes aren't hugely different. It's a couple minutes different. Basically, did you see people die? (laughs) Because... No. Nope. (laughs) The MPAA was ruthless on this film. Absolutely ruthless. And I'd never heard this said before, but what was said in the bonus features is, because of the murder of John Lennon, the MPAA was against filmed violence. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Imagine that. I mean, okay, they're describing it anything. To be fair, he was motivated by Catcher in the Rye. I don't believe it was... (laughs) slasher films, but there was somebody that had been influenced by pop culture that killed a figure. Okay, maybe this movie has the power to do that. Well, I feel very sad that both of you saw the rated version. Nobody should see the rated version. Yeah, I feel like maybe this underrated one now is going to address my big complaint. Well, I guess we'll find out. Yeah, I definitely felt like it needed a name change. There's no way to call this my bloody Valentine. That was my review. (laughs) The director calls the theatrical version my anemic Valentine. Mm -hmm. And they kept cutting and cutting. And because this was in film, literally stuff was left on the cutting room floor. And somehow Shout Factory was able to restore a lot of this footage. And there's a lot of gore. Well, I think we should pause the show and let me go watch that and come back. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. This could be significant enough to change an arrow. (laughs) Yeah, because, I mean, it's just gore. There's not extra scenes. I don't think we want extra dialogue scenes or anything. No, I want gore. I want more gore. (laughs) Yeah, or some. Well, as we go through these deaths, I will tell you the gore involved and say 80s level, but man, what a difference between the two cuts. Yeah, I can imagine. Well, let's get into it. Arnie, why don't you give him the plot and we can find out why this Valentine's so bloody. Or is it? On Valentine's Day in 1960, in Valentine's Bluff, a Canadian mining town, two mine supervisors left their job early to go to the town's Valentine's Day dance. The supervisors left with five miners still down in the mine. The methane causes an explosion and the miners get trapped. When the rescue crews dug them out, only one miner survived. His name was Harry Warden, and he survived by eating the other miners with whom he was trapped. The next year on Valentine's Day, Harry got his revenge. During the night's Valentine's Day dance, Harry went and killed the two supervisors that left him to be trapped. He tore out their hearts and put them in heart-shaped candy boxes and warned if the town ever had the dance again, he'd come back and kill again. Twenty years passed and Valentine's Bluff ignored the February 14th holiday, but in 1981, the mine owner and town mayor Hanniger decided the town should again embrace Valentine's Day and have a dance. The townsfolk primarily consist of miners, and our main character is T.J. Hanniger, the mayor's son. He'd gone out west to find a better life, but he recently came back home, tail between his legs, 
and took a job in his father's mine. While TJ was gone, his girlfriend Sarah took up with TJ's friend and fellow miner, Axel. Now that TJ's back, there's tension between him and Axel, and Sarah is torn between her current and former lover. The tension between the two men grew as Valentine's Day drew near. Meanwhile, the mayor and police chief, Jake Newby, were facing their worst nightmare. Someone sent them a human heart, threatening them not to have their Valentine's Day dance. The authorities thought Harry was back, and they tried to keep the continuing murders under wraps. After two murders, though, they canceled the dance. The disappointed young miners decided to hold their own secret Valentine's Day party at the mine. The killer was in on the secret, however, and sent another human heart to the police chief. At the party, several revelers were slaughtered by the man wearing the miner's mask and wielding a pickaxe. Some of the partiers, including Sarah, decided to take a joyride down to the mine and weren't present when the dead bodies were discovered. The young people fled the party, but TJ and Axel both team up to go into the mine to rescue Sarah and the others. Those underground start to get picked off one by one by the mysterious miner. Then Axel was lost by drowning in a 60-foot sump pond. Several others are killed until only TJ and Sarah remain. The miner attacks TJ, who fought back and removed the miner's mask to find Axel underneath. He'd faked his own death. Axel was the son of one of the mine supervisors who left early in 1960, and as a young boy, Axel watched Harry murder Axel's father in 1961. TJ fought off Axel until a mine cave-in trapped the serial killer. By this time, the authorities had arrived and tried to dig out Axel, but the crazy man had cut off his own arm. Axel shouted he'd be back and ran off into the mine as credits roll. Yeah, I can definitely see the blueprint. I mean, whole part and parcel, really. The the Friday the 13th storyline is essentially here, right down to the fact that they keep it a murder mystery. We are given a possibility of the idea that it's uh, Freddy Krueger or Jason Voorhees. He could even come back in the sequel. But for this movie... It's a big question mark, who's doing all this Valentine's Day dance killing? And it starts with the weirdest sex scene I could ever imagine, or the weirdest sex act I could ever imagine. Well, it's so weird because later on we're going to find out no women allowed down in the mine, but yes, we're going to get a sexy strip tease as this woman takes off her mining suit and seductively strokes the hose of the other miner. And this is where I thought I would be watching a slasher with teenagers or Friday the 13th age people. When this woman takes off her mask, I'm like, she's at least 30. Yeah. <laughs> and I felt vindicated because later on they're going to say, we have the heart of a 30-year-old female. I'm like, yes! Yeah, that feels very specific. I don't. Can you narrow it down that much? Maybe. I don't know. But I'm like, this is not a teenage woman, and we're not going to see any nipple. She has a little heart tattoo, though, and she's going to be impaled on a pickaxe by her mysterious lover. Now, I mean, this ain't 1921. They're not going to send children down into the mine. They're not going to put miners mining. <laughs> so, yeah, it makes sense that summer camp, yes. Did we not review all the right moves last year? Was teenage Tom Cruise not working in the mine? That's what I expected this movie to be. True enough. And again, made around the same time, the whole Rust Belt phenomenon, the collapse of that industry was happening. I guess that's a reason to set it in the mining. Again, I wanted to say, didn't know this was coming, turned on this movie, 
seeing this opening, I'm grabbed. I'm really intrigued. It is really atmospheric to see these tunnels, the way that they're lit. The outfit's really cool. And yeah, this kill is really over the top and surprising for lots of reasons, including her age. (laughs) Yeah, it set me up for a fun, campy slasher film. I'm totally expecting to enjoy this from this opening kill. And initially, you would have gotten more of what you came for, because the way that it is in the theatrical cut... You see her pushed against a wall, and then they zoom into her mouth, and that's a nice shot. I do like the mouth zoom. But in the unrated cut, you actually get to see a little of her heart and the pickaxe poke out the front of her chest. So that's just the beginning taste of the gore that was missing from this film. I'm going to just apologize to Canadians everywhere then. I just thought they didn't have it. I was like, boy, this is where the Americans really are going to win the gold. I mean, Cronenberg is Canadian. They could do that kind of stuff. I just thought, I guess they didn't have the money to do it in this one. They actually brought in American makeup artists to do all these effects that nobody got to see. I mean, if you're going to do a slasher, you do need a Tom Savini. You do need... It doesn't have to look realistic, but it's got to look bloody. You're calling this thing My Bloody Valentine. We cut to the credits, and it's like an animated drip coming off the title. (laughs) Like, you need to lean in on that. And the shock of this cut of this movie is that so many times I'm left wanting on the blood. Almost every time. I couldn't believe how different it makes the movie feel. I watched the unrated cut first. And I'm like, oh, it's just gore. Sometimes if I see on movie censorship, it's just gore. I'm like, I don't need to watch the rated cut. But there was so much of it here. And I got a little confused. There's a lot of characters in here. A lot of minors. Yep. Agreed. And I wanted to see their relationship again. So I decided I'd watch this movie a second time. And I decided to watch the theatrical cut for the difference. And just startling how little you actually get of what you would come to see in a slasher. And what happens here is that I don't know that we ever get a name for this woman. Do you know who she is? You're talking about all the characters. I don't know who this chick is, why she's down in the mine. The importance of it is she's the first heart that gets mailed to the mayor. That this town for 20 years hasn't held a dance because of the tragedy. Well, we'll get to the story of that. But they're ready to... Let the kids, or kids. Yeah, that's what I'm (laughs) saying. The way that these miners, you think blue-collar, tough, under-the-ground-all-day miners, they are so super excited for this wannabe 1950s sock hop of a Valentine's Day (laughs) dance. It feels like high school students. Apparently, this was well-researched. First of all, much of this film was filmed in an actual mine. Not that opening scene. Oh, I know that. I know it was. Yeah, I believe that for sure. It's got authenticity all over the place in its location. Yeah, and if you feel it's underlit, it's because they were not allowed to bring extra lights lest there be a methane explosion. Yeah, this is the movie you want to put your life on the line for like that. (laughs) But they talked to some of the miners. This was a closed down mine, obviously. And they talked to some of the miners. And after being underground all day, all they wanted to do was party and have fun and... Apparently play grab ass in the shower. Yeah, go to the bar, get drunk, but you want to go to a town dance? Really? That's the fun you want? (laughs) I don't think of coal miners being, like, good at (laughs) two-stepping. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I need to be disabused of that belief. But, yeah, I I imagine them wanting to get drunk and screwing, maybe doing this put-the-knife-between-your-fingers game that they're going to do. But, yes, this is not—I can't imagine them doing the twist. A dance with cake— (laughs) And party favors. 
An old women from the town, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> weird vibe. But again, so delicious to have this as the theme they're working in here. And again, so the signature is, I kill someone and then I take their heart and I put it in a box of candy and I give it to the mayor who's really excited to get off his diet and open up that box of candy. <laughs> and then it's like, ah, just hilarious. Yeah, his reaction to it, the way he, he looks like he's having a heart attack. He doesn't really scream. He's just like, oh, no, not again. (laughs) But I'm confused by these miners because I didn't realize when I watched this the first time this was a Canadian production and all of these accents. And I'm like, sorry. Yeah, they're sorry all the time. Yeah, they're Canadian. (laughs) Are they trying to speak to the Irish American mining population? (laughs) It turns out they are just all very Canadian. And this film doesn't do a great job introducing the characters. Right? I feel like I'm maybe halfway through the film, I'm finally getting a grasp on what the relationships are, who TJ is, what his story. I feel like we're just throwing a bunch of characters and supposed to just sort it out somehow. Fortunately, they're all very distinctive looking, especially, especially Hollis with that mustache. That is a impressively frightening mustache, sir. Yeah, handlebar mustache. I mean, mustaches were big in this era, but that one, no. (laughs) That's one of those that you wax and he curls it up. It's not like a walrus mustache. Barber from the 20s. Yeah, (laughs) definitely not like an 80s stash at all. And yeah, the blue collar guys pouring out of here. Can't wait to get into town. Can't wait to have their dance in two days. And now it's in jeopardy because the mayor has gotten this heart and because there is this lore. They all go to the bar and happy the bartender. Who is this harbinger that just sits at the bar to give them these warnings? He's happy. I love it. Yeah. We always need the harbinger. We've seen it so many times it gets called out for the cliche that it is. Old Ralph from Friday the 13th. You're going to Camp Blood, ain't you? It's like they just were copying that. I don't know that the director had seen Friday the 13th. The only movie he will admit to homaging is Black Christmas. But this is old Ralph from Friday the 13th to me. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And the idea, like, okay, Friday the 13th, I get it. My child died here and a delusional parent is going to, like, come back and make sure that no teenagers run this camp again. But... Follow this one. So two dudes that are supervising just want to cut out and they don't want to go to a dance. They want to go get drunk. And because they leave their post. It says that they're going to the dance, though. They they go to the dance. We cut to the dance, but they're not two-stepping. Again, calling it a dance implies that we're going to get a musical sequence we will never get. (laughs) This is not Footloose, thankfully. Or maybe that would be great. I don't know. It actually reminded me so much of Footloose, but Footloose was three years later. But anyway, the point is the methane gas built up or something. I don't know much about mines, but I know that's not a good thing. Maybe if they were there, they would have been able to warn the guys down below or stop the methane from building up. What they said is because they left early, they forgot to check the methane levels. If they checked the methane levels, they'd have pulled the guys out. But they were so worried about the party... They didn't even look at the methane levels, left the guys down there, big explosion, and it takes weeks to try to dig these people out. Yeah, and normally you would have that be the owner of the mine. I'm just going to put it out there that this mine is called the Hanager Mining Company. The mayor is Mayor Hanager. 
you would think that that would be his greed. You wouldn't think it was just like two guys that want to go get drunk. You would think he was like, I'm keeping my workers down there, even though they're supposed to be partying right now. And because of that greed, they died. Instead, Happy the bartender is part of the search committee that digs through there. And six weeks later, all the miners are dead and eaten, except for Harry Warden, who... Again, is our Michael Myers, or at least our mythological figure that's probably doing some of these killings later. Yeah, I kind of figured out what was the twist was going to be at the end as I'm watching this, but wouldn't this have been better if it was just a Harry Warden story? Like, I don't even understand the twist they go for. Like, it makes no sense why it is who it is. No, it does not. No. I love the whodunit part of it. I love the guessing the game. And I'm not good at it. I had lots of theories, and I could not conclude who the killer was. Oh, I figured out who it was and probably what his motive was. I'm like, but that doesn't make sense. I don't know. Just make it about Harry. They kept the identity of the killer secret from the cast. They didn't give them the last pages of the script. Oh, this is real Empire Strikes Back. They don't want to reveal that twist. They wanted the characters to all act like they weren't the killer or maybe like they all were the killer and only reveal it at the end. So... If you're trying to do a whodunit based off performance, you're not really going to be able to. Yeah, there's lots of viable subjects, hence why the cast is so big, why they gotta have all of these characters. I thought we were just gonna have a lot of cool kills. That's why we have so many characters introduced here for all the awesome, bloody murders we'll see throughout the film. Personally, I think the killer should have been Harriet the Barmaid Virgin. I mean, that would have been something. Yeah, There's always <laughs> hope for the reboot, that they could do something out of the box. But again, this feels very appropriate to the times. Jacob, you didn't follow us on some of those early days, but early slashers are whodunits. Black Christmas, Friday the 13th. They do that cheesy POV, and we're going to spend the whole movie trying to guess who that really is under the mask. Yeah, I figured it wasn't actually going to be Harry under the mask. I've seen Friday the 13th, that first one. I know it's a whodunit, but I don't know. Maybe it's because these characters are not well-defined. Like, I just, I never get a vibe. The person I guess, and I'm right, is just because that's the cliche who it should have been. It's not because any of these characters are so well-written or this is such a great mystery. Like, I I would have been more into a whodunit if these were better-written characters that I could actually set apart besides, you know, that guy's got the crazy mustache. I agree that, again, the characters aren't very well-differentiated. At one point, you hear that people saying... They don't like Howard. And I'm like, which one is Howard? Yeah, who's Howard? <laughs> Turns out he was the goofy one, always making faces and playing pranks and snorting Coke. And I don't mean cocaine. I mean, like, Coca-Cola up his nose. Yeah, that was never a suspect on my list. If it were Harry Warden, if you were going to just say that this guy that got buried alive and had to eat his fellow miners to stay alive for six weeks, then, like, his whole method would be, like eat flesh right like that would be the point he's going around eating all of these people instead we don't know what's happening to the bodies all we know is the hearts get ripped out and sent to someone instead like what we're told is and i love this detail he's sent off to the state hospital to be locked up like michael myers but every year somebody maybe him they don't know because they don't keep good records we have no idea who's coming and going out of our asylum, but he's going back and killing anyone that wants to have a dance like that. <laughs> no, there's been no killings. They just, they let the terrorists win and haven't even planned a dance lest 
he come back. Okay, because Happy says something like someone has died every year since then. Yeah! No, Happy definitely gives the indication that many people have died. And of course, some did. The guys that were responsible for the methane explosion, the ones that were delinquent on the job and went to the dance rather than stayed at their post, those supervisors did get killed by Harry. And again, we see shots of somebody in the minor outfit returning and this harbinger saying that every year he comes back to make sure nobody's dancing. Well, they may say that like as a scary thing, but nobody's died in 20 years from murder. There's been no hearts in boxes. That's why they feel safe to have a party again is because everybody's been safe for 20 years. Harry's got to have forgotten us by now. Maybe they should just get a key for the jail cell because Harry, like, if you have the killer locked up, you can have the dance the next year. You could have it the next day. But the fact that they don't know whether he's dead or alive or where he's at is pretty hilarious. But yes, that's the whole story of Harry. And it's supposed to be a big deal. When we get to the end credits, they're going to be singing the ballad of Harry Warden. And yet he's kind of a red herring. Yeah, I thought you wrote ballads about like chopping down trees, you know, and John Henry, that kind of thing. Like the ballad about a cannibal miner. (laughs) Again, it's not unlike Jason Voorhees, where again, you build up the idea of the legend and who would be coming back. And in sequels, you could, you would. If you were going to make a part two, it's going to be Harry Warden, the cannibal miner who hates dancing. But for this one, it feels right that, yes, it's a misdirect. We think that it's going to be a phantom. And in fact, we have all these other suspicious people. And I'm looking at TJ. I think it's pretty obvious it's TJ. Here's a guy who went away to California for some nebulous time. and Not California. Right. I thought the same thing. He went west. He didn't go southwest. He didn't go to the States. He went to Western Canada. And I was curious what this whole go west thing is. Apparently, it was a big thing if you were a miner in East Canada, to go west and hope to make your fortune as a lumberjack or an oil miner. (laughs) But Western Canadians have a totally different attitude, and a lot of Eastern Canadians had to go back. (laughs) Didn't make it. So that whole, I thought the same thing. He went to California. He wanted to be an actor. But no, he went to West Canada. Well, I wasn't thinking he did go to California. I was thinking that he went to the insane asylum and now is Harry or they were going to do some kind of trick to imply that he's the killer because he's obviously, he's the plant of the screenwriter that it's obvious it's him and yet a young audience, a naive audience would never suspect it's him because he's our romantic lead. He's the guy who's trying to win the girl back. You calling me naive because I never suspected TJ. Yeah, you calling me naive because he's the main character. I thought he was going to be our last guy. Exactly, which is why you make him the killer. And then you have all of these details about where he's been all of this time. And he's the one that says we should hold the dance in the mine. And he's the one that picks up the phone and says, oh, the line's been cut, but we don't hear that. Yeah, I definitely see that you could make the version that is TJ. Yeah, maybe so. I honestly can't say I was thinking so hard on the whodunit because there were so many characters. I felt it was going to be one of the background ones. I mean, was it going to be Hollis or Howard or... No, no, it was never going to be them. There's no way that was Hollis in that outfit. 
No, you need to look at the mayor. Again, the guy that from 20 years ago, you need to look. I'll tell you who really looks suspicious is that sheriff because he's just, at one point he sneaks up on Sarah, the romantic object of affection. And like, he's just patrolling. He's always in the area where the murders happen, but he's just patrolling. They do a pretty good job of creating three or four possibilities. Yeah, you're saying pretty good job. I just took this as all bad writing and like just <laughs> extraneous scenes that were like were taking up time. No, I agree with Stuart. I actually appreciate the love triangle going on here. Our main storyline is that TJ was going with Sarah and he went out west and Sarah hooked up with TJ's best friend Axel and now he's back and it's caused tension, but it's it actually feels like grown-up tension. It's not like schoolyard tension where they're going to start off punching each other. These two are still friends, and TJ's trying to talk it out. He's like, what are we going to do about this? But Axel's feeling threatened. And that's why I'm fingering Axel as the real killer. Like, at this point, I'm like, okay, it's him. TJ, he's the benevolent, not quite the outsider, but he has left the clan and come back. He has that otherworldly knowledge. To me, that's the hero. It's Axel's the bad guy. The one that never leaves the town. He's the Gaston from Beauty and the Beast. Like, he's the one to suspect. Yeah, which is why you would reverse that and then surprise everyone at the end. Do you know what you're watching, Stuart? Well, I'm watching something that surprised me. Because, again, I really thought that they were telling us in a lot of these setups. I'm not saying this is good writing. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying that they have a lot of fun setting up possibilities. And I, again, because there is this sort of loose screenplay where we do have extraneous scenes and we linger on characters... There's reasons to suspect everyone. And if they didn't have that, if it was just a slasher movie, it would be a lot more tedious. The fact that I'm trying to guess who's doing it makes it more engaging. See, and I'm finding it tedious because it's not a slasher. I'm like, where is that blood? Where are the kills? We have all these characters and I don't find them that interesting. But we do have a second kill pretty quick into the movie. And it is the strangest murder victim in any slasher I've ever seen. This old lady who's helped put together the dance and who runs the local laundromat. (laughs) (laughs) Madam Mabel, yeah. I mean, you do that because the kills leading up to it are the ones we don't care about. You know, you save the hot young flesh for the night of. (laughs) we got to save all those crusty dudes and their haggard women (laughs) for February 14th. But yeah, two days before, the lady that's putting up the hearts and decorating the Union Hall is going to be thrown in her own dryer and burnt to a crisp? Yes, in the unrated cut when she's found, is she still on tumble and she rolls and rolls and rolls. <laughs> <laughs> oh, see, I felt like this is the most you get. If you want gore, this is the one scene when they pull her body out. You don't get those extra tumbles. I would have loved that. But they do pull her out and she's got this fried face. And I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, let's do more of that. And that is the most you will ever get in this film. And I love that the sheriff comes in there, like, sniffing. Like, he (laughs) smells it before he sees it. Sniffing? Yeah, he's smelling his pipe. Is it my tobacco, or is it a dead person? He's smoking some skunk tobacco, if he's confused on that. (laughs) It might be some weed, yeah. (laughs) And it's kind of funny, because she was hoping he was the one that sent the candy box. Right before she got killed, she got one of those coded messages. And it's part of the M.O. of the killer to compose a little valentine rhyme roses are red violets are blue one is dead and so are you which as jacob has already parodied 
kind of a lazy rhyme. <laughs> I mean, when we get to the one like once, twice, and if you do this, it's going to be thrice. I just, I did crack up out loud. Yeah, it is kind of funny how we know he's not a poet. Whoever this is, he's definitely not somebody that spent time with his face in the book a lot. But this isn't seeming strange to you. Like, there's a killer out on the loose who wants to stop a Valentine's Day dance. These are our stakes here. It's pretty clumsy. But again, I think that's part of the charm. Yes, if you're taking this seriously, that's incredibly bad. If you want a brown arrow fun throwback, then yeah, I'm smiling kind of heavily here. Like, it's goofy and, you know, I kind of enjoy the obviousness of it all. The romance stuff, I'm not feeling let me ask, since we know Axel done it, what do you think is going through his head? Because I was trying to figure this out. Is he so insane that he, like, has a multiple personality thing going on and he thinks he's hairy because of a childhood trauma? Or is he doing this to stop the dance because he thinks somehow this is going to keep TJ and Sarah apart? I couldn't figure out Axel's motivation for his murder spree, and I wonder if you guys did. I thought it was pretty basic. A child that's exposed to a violent act that sees their parent be murdered. Think of Friday the 13th. It was watching his mom get the boat oar cutting off her head that caused Jason to get out of the water. I think they're implying that little children become psycho and do something to their parent. In this case, it's a father. And they'll be demented, split personality. But the weird thing for me is, okay, Jason, yes, he saw his mom murdered, but he's a child that died because other people neglected him. Like, he was a victim, and then he's going to come back the monster. It's hard for me to think of Axel as the victim. Like, your dad got killed because he was an asshole and left people down in a mine, and five of them died because of that. Like, there's a weird victimhood you want to play with your monster, and then, I don't know, I don't think they play it quite right with Axel here because his dad was in the wrong. This doesn't feel like a righteous revenge type thing on townspeople that ignored his father, who actually died like it's his dad's fault yeah you got a good point on that one i don't think it, we're supposed to think of it too deep as like he's getting revenge on the guy that got revenge <laughs> i think it's more just like now i'm psycho and being psycho means that <laughs> half the time i'm a normal guy and then half the time i'm like going to put on the mask and go to the laundromat and throw this old lady on a heavy cycle until she's just yeah fried chicken <laughs> i don't like to think of this lady on a heavy cycle Stuart. <laughs> but I also wonder how that scene went when Axel was seducing the woman he killed in the first scene. Like, I feel like cheating on Sarah with you. Let's go down to the mine. Put on this outfit. <laughs> yeah, how did he seduce her in the first place? Yeah, there's a lot that goes into that. It seems like there's only one place to hang out and meet chicks in this entire mining town. So how did he do it behind Sarah's back? Keep in mind, I only saw this movie once and my theory the whole time burning without a doubt was that it's TJ. So when it turned out to be <laughs> Axel, I was like, wait, what? <laughs> so yeah, I don't know. Now that you're asking me to think about what he was doing, what he was thinking, all I can tell you is that by the definitions of these kinds of movies at that time, psycho means that you don't know the crazy part of yourself. Half the time, you're completely fine. You're just a happy-go-lucky guy at a bar. And then 
You can snap, and suddenly you're taking the pickaxe to people. Like Happy. Happy is really mad. I love the fact, first he's like vindicated. The truth comes out, Mabel died, and they try to cover it up by saying she had a heart attack. But he knows, and he's like, see, I told you, you assholes. And they're like, we're still going to have a dance, even though it's canceled. We're going to go to the mine. So he's going to prank them? He's going to go down there to the mine and prank them? I love this. That's a great prank, too. I like that prank. He's got a miner outfit, and he's roped the pickaxe to come up. Yeah, like, he has to keep opening the door and laughing the same way. Like, there is just something, we can all see what's about to come, and the obviousness of it just, it is making me laugh. Which, yeah, I don't mind the obviousness of it, I mind the bloodlessness of it, and that is something I cannot understate in this theatrical cut. Like, I am so mad at this point, because I'm like, okay, I've been waiting for some kind of kill, and it is cut so quick. Like, as soon as that pickaxe strikes, they cut to a different scene. It is such a fun death in the unrated cut. The pickaxe goes up his chin, out his eye, and pokes his eyeball out. So his eyeball is rolling around outside his face as he falls. Oh my, I'm so mad. This is what I wanted. We really need to stop the podcast and redo it. Like, I gotta see this unrated cut. Yeah, I think that it changes my opinion. It's that dramatic. It really is, and it's fun gore. I mean, am I grossed out or vomiting about any of it? No, but it works better for me than the romance story that goes on here. Can I say I had one really laugh-out-loud moment this whole movie? Stuart, it sounds like you're laughing out loud a lot during this movie. Smirking. But the scene where TJ abducts Sarah to take her to the beach, and the two are having this conversation... You know actors have to hit their marks, and oftentimes you don't film actors' feet because there's X's on the ground telling them this is exactly where the camera's in focus. There are two rocks out of nowhere on this beach, and you watch these actors walk directly to those rocks. And it was so obvious that they were just hitting their marks with those rocks. You're being kind by calling them actors. I mean, I think it's definitely (laughs) true that these people are... Again, that's kind of what I meant about the Canadian thing. Is like, this is... And I don't mean that in a judgmental way. It's just they're not as polished as the American film system. And so when people get a chance to do this, they tend to be a little bit more green. Sometimes that can give you a new energy. Or sometimes it could look like, yeah, they're really hitting obvious marks and not able to sell this... Love story. But again, every time that she's like, why didn't you call? I'm like, because he's the killer. Isn't it obvious? (laughs) But he wins her back with his I failed and I was embarrassed I failed speech. Yeah, it's pretty embarrassing. This party gets going at the mine. They decide to move the dance there because it's been canceled in town. And I feel like the movie should have clarified. It's not in the mine. It's there's a rec room at the mine. (laughs) I thought they were having it in the mine when they first sang it. I'm like, wow, they're going into the mine shaft. They don't have like a break room they can do it in. But yes, they do have a rec room because they're like, oh, we got a pool table. I'm like, they took a pool table down to the bottom of the mine. (laughs) Yeah, no, Happy was putting his little marionette in the doorway of the lunchroom. And that's mostly where the party's happening. But of course, you know, people slip off to dark areas and... Yeah, there's a guy who's going to, and Arnie, you tell me if it's better in that unrated cut, like, he's gonna have his face shoved in hot dog water, which, that's pretty awful, that's the smell alone, but, like, he's gonna be drowned in the hot dog water, and then they're, what, gonna boil his heart, I guess, like, they pull that out of it later. First of all, 
I'm really upset because Sleepaway Camp so ripped off this hot dog kill. I don't remember any of those kills being this boring. But second of all, in the unrated cut, you get POV bottom of pan as the skin blisters and he drowns. Oh my, I'm so fucking mad at this point. I am so mad. (laughs) That you watched the wrong cut? Yes. Hulu, the enemy that perpetuates the inferior bloodless My Bloody Valentine. Yes, I am upset. (laughs) Yeah, I definitely think that changes the tone because we can see the punchline that David, we haven't really noticed him before, but he walks into this party and says something about his baby face. How are you going to kill somebody like that? You're going to boil their face off. But if you don't actually boil their face off on camera, the joke doesn't play. I can't remember in the rated cut. Do you see his scarred up face in the refrigerator? Yeah, it's in the background blurry. Yeah, but it's not the same thing. Okay, it's not so blurry in the unrated cut. But that death, I really don't keep much track of Dave both times I'm watching this. I'm like, I have no idea who this character is. The boiling of his heart, I've seen those before. My parents used to buy whole cows, and when you buy whole cows, yes, you get a lot of great steaks and ribs and what have you. You also get a tongue and a heart, and my German shepherd loved boiled heart. So... (laughs) I knew exactly what she pulled out at that point. That gross, gray-colored, boiled beef heart. We also get two other people we haven't noticed before. This ginger named John, who has decided to sleep with Sylvia at the locker room. And I guess that kind of makes sense. He's got the condom. He doesn't have the beer. He goes back. This is where we saw what happened to Dave. See, John was supposed to be a big red herring because when he first sees Sylvia earlier in the movie, he picks her up by her head and kisses her. I noticed that, yeah. And so you're supposed to think John's tall, John's strong, John's able to pick people up by their head. It's so weird that they have this scene where, yes, here's our sex scene and they're going to get it because of the sin of having sex. But for some reason, we're going to spend a lot of time on these clothes that they suspend up in the air like their minor outfits. Maybe they smell so bad, they just got to get them way far away from their noses. And then we cut to other scenes. It takes forever for this couple to die. Like, you go off into the corner, and then you die. And then you go to your next kill here. It's so elongated. Can I, I guess, drill into this? Maybe you know. Why are the uniforms suspended 30 feet up in the air on hooks? That is actually how miners do it. (laughs) I figured they did, but why? Because when they come up from the mines, their outfits are soaking because it's really hot down there. And so they put their outfits up there to dry overnight. They shower. So they don't wash their outfits. No, and then they just put the outfits back on when they're dry the next day. It was the fact that they were filming in a real mine that entirely inspired this quote-unquote scare. They saw where all the people hung their outfits and were like, That would be a fun jump scare. Let's have an outfit fall. Yeah, I get that. And again, it's also where Happy falls back in. She sees his murdered body. She knows she's in trouble. And of course, we're supposed to think that all these suits falling, one of them is going to be the killer. And eventually he grabs her and does something that it takes me, even when I see John come back in and he's all happy that like, oh, you're in the shower. Let me get in here. It really takes me a long while to realize. And then I'm laughing because they hold on his face for so long. I guess the killer has stuck her head on the faucet of the shower and water's pouring out of her mouth. 
Yeah, no, I saw that and I said out loud to my wife, why aren't they showing us the head with the water spouting out? You'll see it kind of in shadow in the theatrical cut, but again, Arnie, you're going to tell me about how great this scene was because you actually got to see it. Yeah, first of all, there's no faucets. They did set this up earlier, and again, this death was inspired by them just walking through the mine that's going to be their set. The miners don't use shower heads. They just have pipes that water comes out of. And so you've got these sharp pipes, and that's what her head was impaled on. And yes, when you see the impalation, blood is coming out of her mouth, but when the body is found, water is pouring out of her mouth. <laughs> I mean, you only see his reaction, which is, I mean, hysterical. Again, because they have to hold it so long, they can't cut to what he's reacting to. It's really ridiculous. And then, of course, he's not a very good actor. Yeah, it's a very long pan up the bloody sweater to get to the face that's just spurting water out. It looks like, imagine putting a water hose in the head of a sex doll, because her mouth is open in that sex doll thing. You have to imagine it in the cut we saw. Yeah, that's all we did. (laughs) It seemed like a really amusing idea that, again, I felt this movie wasn't delivering the moment. And that's not the truth. The truth is the movie delivered the moment the MPAA wouldn't let it exist. But while all this is going on, Hollis, I didn't think he was ever much of a suspect. He always seemed like the peacemaker. He's always the one trying to break up the fights between the two romantic rivals. And TJ and Axel had gotten in a fist fight at the party at this point. Yeah, he's ready to take the girl. He's going to break the cardinal rules. No women in the mine. (laughs) I feel like there's a lawsuit, like, yeah, sex discrimination. No, no, the lawsuit would be for endangering the lives of these girls. Well, yeah, a lot of lawsuits should come (laughs) out of this. But, I mean, at this point, yes, the six going down into the mine. One of them is Sarah. She's had enough of both guys. She doesn't want TJ or Axel at this point. She's going down there, along with poor Howard, who's been blue-balled by everybody and cannot find a girl on this Valentine's Day. And then, yes, we've got Hollis and Harriet and Mike and Harriet, the two virgins. Mike's a virgin? Yeah, remember they make a joke in the shower about how he's got the biggest dick but nothing to use it on? Okay. And they sang a song about Harriet being a virgin when they were at the bar. So, okay. Yeah, it took me the second viewing to catch it because they say Harriet... Has not lost her chariot. And I'm like, her chariot? Oh, her chariot. Got it. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And anyway, they're not going to because they're going to be found with a drill going through their middle. Again, all of this not subtle phallic imagery, like hoses shooting out of people's mouth, drills going into people. If it were a Valentine's Day killer that didn't want people to have sex or had some weird sexual hangup, that's what I would expect. But if this is a cannibal or a small child that saw their daddy die, that doesn't leave you with that kind of sexual rage, I don't think. Plus, you killed the laundromat lady. Well, and it's a miner killing people the way a miner would with pickaxes and nail guns and pipes. I don't feel like even if they want to go with this miner for some reason, like you need a lot of hearts being cut out and that kind of stuff. Now, I'm very mad at the MPAA because this dual death of Harriet and Mike has been lost forever. There was a full-on sex scene, and they don't notice that the minor guy comes in, he stabs Mike with the drill, and 
Harriet thinks Mike's just coming, and then Harriet opens her mouth, and Mike's, like, bleeding all into her mouth, and then the miner pushes the drill again and kills Harriet. Apparently, it was the goriest and most fun death in this whole movie, and nobody can find the footage. Or at least you can say that when nobody can prove you wrong by showing you the footage. But yes, I'd be happy to see any blood. I mean, keep in mind, you're at least seeing some in your cut, but I'm seeing nothing. And it's par for the course that this is just something happening in the dark that Hollis stumbles into. Once they get word from above that the killer is on the loose, Hollis is uh, taken out by a nail gun. And this is when TJ and Axel have come down to rescue these people. So... Nobody in the mine died until those two came down. Now the suspect list grows small. Yeah. For a while, I was I was 80% sure that it was TJ, but they were always cutting back up to the sheriff, who, again, always looked suspicious and was acting weird and was always turning up right before the kills happened. And then I realized the mayor wasn't around, and it is his mine after all. So that made him suspicious. But those guys are eventually getting some kind of posse, and we see them up above. They finally got the call from the hospital that Harry died five years ago. Right, yeah, it took him forever to get back with that. They had to check on microfiche. I'm like, don't computers (laughs) just ruin this kind of movie delay now? That's hilarious. But anyway, the point is that, yes, the suspect list has grown down to two. We know it's either TJ or... Axel. And which will it be? The girls keep running into the arms of one and the other, and we're just not sure. Howard, I don't know, is his death good in your version? I feel like he is the kind of person that always dies in these kinds of slasher movies. The guy that takes drugs or is trying to be the party animal. You usually want to do something pretty spectacular, but he just kind of falls. Yeah, because they're trying to get out of the mine, and... TJ and Sarah and Patty and Axel are climbing up the ladder there. And what we saw that Howard had run away earlier, he just got scared. He was going up this ladder himself, I guess. His body falls down on a noose and then the noose decapitates him. Yeah, his head pops off, right? You kind of get that idea from the theatrical cut. I couldn't figure out what happened. You clearly see the head pop off and then the body headless fall to the ground in the unrated. And he did that on his own. Like, that isn't the work of the killer because the killers are climbing the ladder underneath him. He's just a stupid klutz and killed himself. Huh, I hadn't thought about that. I just assumed that was another Axel kill while Axel and TJ had split up. He could have killed him earlier and set up the body or something. Who knows? The point is that they could have kept climbing, but they believe the killer is above them. So let's go run to the tram. There's two ways to get down. You can either take this elevator that's been dismantled and climb up the shaft on this ladder. Or you could take the fun, like, uh, train ride that, you know, Disneyland kind of vibe to it. I'm wondering why they didn't take the tram in the first place. That's how they got down there. Yeah, you would figure you'd go for that. And of course, Patty earlier was bragging about how she was going to wear her killer dress. We've been waiting the whole movie to see her killed in this dress. And she does get the pickaxe. And we're really down to what we always expected. Like, is Sarah going to run into the arms of the killer? And which man is it going to be? But it's not Axel. Axel dies. They leave him behind them a little bit, hear a splash, come back, and he's fallen into a 60-foot sump pool, and TJ's not even going to try to help him because he's dead already. Yeah, I was like, well, maybe 
maybe that's a misdirect or maybe I'm right about this. I wasn't sure. By that point, I was like, they're making it so much that it has to be TJ that it can't be TJ. And indeed... Yeah, TJ is exactly what you guys are describing. He's the hero of this kind of thing that's going to protect Sarah when the miner comes and attacks them on the train ride. They have a little bit of a action scene. I guess I'll call it that. Ooh, I would not say action. It is, it is so laughable. Like I'm cracking up at this point how incompetent it is. It's pretty funny. TJ grabs the shovel and protects him from the pickaxe. Yeah, shovel versus pickaxe. That's the fight I've been waiting for. Mm-hmm. But he does get the mask off, and we get to see Axel. And then the flashback that I don't know whose point of view is the flashback, maybe Axel's, of little Axel under a bed watching his father be killed. Unfortunately, the footage is lost forever that Harry Warden pulled out Axel's dad's still beating heart. So help me out with this. So Harry Warden was already locked up in the asylum and somehow got out and did this killing. And then didn't get caught or did get caught and go back in. I'm not sure that he went to the asylum for his cannibalism. Yeah, I don't think it was until he killed the supervisors. Then that's when he went to jail or the psychiatric ward. Oh, I had the impression that spending six weeks eating your friends in a mine sent him into the nut house. Do you think all of the people from the airplane crash in Alive went to the nut house for eating the dead? No, but that's not a cheesy horror movie from the 80s. I just, <laughs> I got that impression, but okay. So he went to jail because of this act, and there wasn't any killing again, and yet they still didn't have a dance for 20 years? That's weird. Yeah, well, <laughs> if your whole town is the mine, and the dance reminds you of the mining accident now, but for some reason, little Axel hiding under the bed, sucking his thumb, is now decided to become the killer. Yeah, he's had a psychotic break and is laughing about daddy's gone away and be my bloody Valentine. Oh, no, no, no. There's a cave in before all of that. Well, one of the things I was expecting for this finale is, yeah, there's a cave in and I guess he just cuts his arm off or maybe chews it off and runs away. There's a 127 hours worthy him cutting his own arm off scene in the unrated cut. Wow, okay, because I felt like they were setting up like a big explosion, like there's earlier Hollis's like, oh yeah, these walls are treated with something in case of an explosion, like, I thought they were going to set that up for the climax. No, they wanted to have sequels, possibly, so they wanted Axel to survive, he got caught in that trap, and it's so much better in the unrated cut, because... The police show up, finally, as they do in the climax of every horror movie once the final battle is over, and they're trying to dig out Axel. You know, let's save Axel's life. He's killed, like, 20 people. Let's save Axel's life. Yeah, it's so weird how, like, super into saving him they are. Sarah's running back to him, too. I think she would date him again. (laughs) Sarah takes his hand and is holding it through the rock, And then she pulls and the arm comes off. And that's great because you cut to the other side and she's holding his hand. And he's cutting that arm off from his side. (laughs) Oh, that was a fun one. Okay, you convinced me. You saw a different movie than we did and we feel cheated. Yes. (laughs) If I'd known that the differences were this drastic and that you guys were both seeing the rated cut, I would have (laughs) intervened. But yeah, he then is running off and screaming... I'm coming back, you bastards. And you know what I thought would happen is the second arm would be the pickaxe in the future. You know, like the hook hand, you have the pickaxe hand. 
There you go. Yeah, there's stuff you can play with. Although, again, I think you want to bring Warden back into it. I think you'd actually want the cannibal. Like, I would have killed this guy just like they killed the mom in Friday the 13th, and then you get the real guy for part two. Yeah, but keep in mind, this was made before Friday the 13th part two had even been announced. So they had no idea that they could copy that formula. (laughs) (laughs) And Jacob Stewart, do you recommend My Bloody Valentine? Jacob. I'm just going to speak to the theatrical cut because I agree, Stuart. Arnie saw something very different than us, and I can't speak to that. I could say stay away from the one on Hulu because, yeah, it's not Bloody Valentine. It is my Valentine, maybe, but there is no blood, and that was the shock. I could go with all the bad writing, the weird twists they throw in just to have a twist with Axel being the killer at the end. Like I could go with all that garbage if I was having some... Fun, visceral kills, because that's why I go to an 80s slasher. I want to see that corn syrup. I want to see the big intestines they bought to turn into human intestines. Like, I want to have all that kind of fun, and that is missing from this, and that is the biggest problem. Like, I'm not having a whole lot of laughs because this is so campy, but it really comes down to those kills. I didn't see that unrated cut. It sounds like that would address all the issues. So all I can say is stay far away from this theatrical cut. It is not a bloody Valentine. I think it actually hates you. (laughs) Do not watch it. Not recommended. Stuart. Yeah, it's definitely not a my bloody Valentine, but it is kind of a my funny Valentine. And I do (laughs) realize that one of the things I've learned being a host or now playing is that we should not look at the slasher genre as scary movies particularly from this era. My criticisms early on about Friday the 13th and the ilk was that they weren't scary, that they weren't good suspense movies. Well, duh. Of course they're not. Now, now that I've been exposed to things like Silent Night, Deadly Night 2, and New Year's Evil, I've appreciated the campy holiday horror movie. And so I was kind of up for this. I was hoping to have laughs. I was hoping to have a My Funny Valentine. But I don't think you can have a funny Valentine without the blood. And so, yeah, I was ready to red arrow this. I enjoyed everything about this, but if you're going to pull back on the kills, then you've pulled back the punchlines. You actually have to have those splatter moments in order for the laugh to feel complete. And I guess it's just that I watched the wrong one. So I'm going to say a last-minute Hail Mary save here and say, yes. If what Arnie is saying is true and we get that splatter, then this is a recommend. This is a brown arrow, funny 80s slasher movie that, yeah, I'm eager to actually rewatch. I thought I'd never watch this movie again after being kind of, yeah, left wanting by the Hulu theatrical cut. But if there's splatter like Arnie suggests, then that is worth your time. I recommend it for myself and for anyone else that wants to go back and have a funny Valentine time. Well, Cordell didn't pay us to do two movies. He did one. But we're going to do the sequel in two weeks. And maybe you guys can check out at least some of the unrated footage by then and give your feedback on if that changes it drastically for you. I could tell, for me, that the theatrical cut just felt hacked to pieces like the bodies in this movie should be. I was really close to recommending the theatrical cut, but held back because specifically on the gore. And as for me, roses are red, but my arrow is green. While this isn't a classic, it deserves to be seen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) The unrated cut deserves to be seen. Want to make that clear? (laughs) Yes. Yeah, I agree. If you do not have that splatter, if you do not have those moments... 
you're just not going to laugh as hard. And I do feel like I was so many times that faucet or whatever it was in the shower. I was like, boy, when you cut to that, I am going to be rolling. And they never cut to it. They never show her eyes. I think the dummy wasn't quite good enough. But yeah, you get to see that gaping mouth with water and blood in equal measure pouring out. And yeah, that's the thing is it has some fun kills. It has a really cool looking killer outfit. I mean, Mm -hmm. yeah, I think that is better than a hockey mask and a work suit. Agreed. Here's the thing. And now I'm starting to have second thoughts about it because the guy that donated for us to hear this is not a fan of the reboot. But I'm thinking, oh, it's an easy improvement. They could take the raw elements here, mine it for all it's worth, and really deliver a quality product next time. Mine it. But Arnie's seen it. I I feel like we're not going to get that. But I agree with you, Stuart. Yeah, I'm still looking forward to it, but I'm hearing that fans, the people that liked this version are saying they don't like My Bloody Valentine 2009 3D. I have very vague memories of it. I just remember wanting to have a fun, stupid slasher 3D time and not having that. And I'll talk more about that experience when... For me, I re-review My Bloody Valentine 3D. Meanwhile, this Friday... More slashers from Brian De Palma, no less. If you are a January patron, you're going to hear us review maybe his most successful of his Hitchcock ripoffs, Dressed to Kill. More successful than Carrie? That's not a Hitchcock ripoff. He had several films that were based on Alfred Hitchcock movies. And this one, I'm not going to tell you which one it is, but you're going to guess. Let me tell you. It's easy (laughs) once you see the movie. Okay, you referenced Hitchcock so much when we reviewed Carrie that I thought that that was also a Hitchcock ripoff. It's not exactly. Carrie will always remain a Stephen King property. Dressed to Kill is very much steeped in a Hitchcock movie that... I think many people would know. I think that coming after Scream and all the postmodern slasher movie thrills here, this was sort of the first movie to take what had been done in the slasher genre and retweak it. That's sort of Brian De Palma's thing. So we'll discuss that and see if it measures up with My Bloody Valentine. So that is for $10 patrons, and you can be a patron on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and get all of our bonus podcasts that we've done over 60 patron exclusive podcasts, including last month's review of cats, apocalypse now and Schindler's list and monster trucks, because all of these things go together. Cats, Schindler's list, apocalypse now, monster. (laughs) What a pairing those are. Try not to have a seizure (laughs) as you go back and forth between those movies. (laughs) The wizard real genius 60 bonus movie reviews $10 Spotify or Apple and also $10 on our Podbean site or Patreon can get you those but on Podbean and Patreon higher donation pledges can get you even more podcasts and you can find all the details at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate but no matter where you choose to support us, if you choose to support us, it's greatly appreciated. It is truly the best Valentine you could send now playing is a donation that helps us fund the shows we do every single Tuesday. So thank you for listening. Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. Cordell, thank you for picking this movie. And until next time, we're coming back, you bastards! <laughs> 
listening to this now playing podcast movie review. We hope you enjoyed the show. It took me 10 years to get that mask out of my head and just like that, it's back. And a special thanks to Cordell Calkins for his incredible support of our show and for picking My Bloody Valentine for our hosts to review. Thank you, thank you very much. Help us spread the word about this show by leaving a five-star review on Stitcher, Podbean, iTunes, or your podcast store of choice. Roses are red, violets are blue. One is dead, so are you. Want more reviews like this one? In the archive section of NowPlayingPodcast.com, you'll find more than 1,000 in-depth movie reviews from our panel of hosts. Exactly what did you see? On our site, you can hear reviews for every installment in the world's biggest film franchises, including Star Wars, Batman, James Bond, Middle Earth, Jurassic Park, Fast and Furious, and the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's gonna be a hot time on Saturday night! And come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com next Tuesday for another all-new movie review podcast. Mabel, this is the best thing that's happened in this town in years. Support from listeners like you keeps Now Playing Podcast on the air. You can donate directly by tapping the support button at nowplayingpodcast.com. You forget about having a party at all on Saturday night, or you may not live to see daylight. And you can join our crowdfunding campaign for early access to new episodes, exclusive reviews, and bonus reviews. Please, help me! Need more Now Playing? Subscribe to our InFocus weekly newsletter for exclusive digital download giveaways, celebrity interviews, behind-the-scenes insights, and more. Sign up through the subscribe page on our website and get it delivered to your inbox every Friday. I wonder who sent this? (laughs) You can also compare notes with us on Letterboxd. Go to letterboxd.com forward slash now playing to see what our hosts are watching when they're not recording podcasts. And follow Now Playing on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and our YouTube channel. I gotta be to work in five hours. Yeah, well, I have to work now. Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. I think he's responsible for what's going on. Associate produced by Jason Latham. Laugh now! To be sorry you didn't listen to me. Now Playing is edited by Heath, Santiago, and Arnie. But I don't care who does it, just get it done. Now Playing Credits, read by Brock. I have my own mouth, thank you. And why don't you use it? The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the views of Enganza Media Incorporated. Don't look at me. I didn't have a thing to do with it. Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with, and this podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created the film analyzed herein. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of their respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review and no infringement is intended. Oh no you don't. If I'm going down there, baby, you're going with me. Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of and may not be used without the express written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2022, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. Happy fucking Valentine's Day.
I don't know. I don't even remember this being on cable. I don't remember this getting a lot of attention in America. What was the box office on this? Arnie? I'm looking. Oh, I figured. <laughs> Seven hours of bonus. He's got eight hours of extras to sift through. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have it in these notes. So I don't have it at the, right at the top. 